let us now uh, go to, so we're in Psalm 93. Um, we are, uh, we've, as we've left Romans, we're just going to uh, drop down in a couple of these Psalms uh, until we land into our next book, which will be soon. I'm excited about Psalm 93 this morning. So let me read there uh, for us. And, and if you are listening online, you should have a handout in the, the chat. They'll send it online so you can get it there. Um, so again, with that handout, uh, it should have everything. So don't feel any need to take notes. It should have the, the majority of what you're going to need there. But let me start by reading Psalm 93. <clears throat> the Lord reigns. He's robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from, from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O oh Lord. The floods lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters. Mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Let's pray. What a privilege this is, Father, to join with so many believers from times past and find comfort around Psalm 93. Father, thank you for giving us this word. Thank you for revealing to us how sure you are. The confidence expressed in this song is unreal. It would be complete arrogance if it were not completely true. God, I pray that as believers this morning, we will walk away fully believing that our God reigns. He has it all under control. That you're in charge, that you're unmovable, and that you're holy. Comfort us. But let us turn and look at the cross in the midst of our comfort. Let us see Jesus as our hope. And Father, would you be honored and glorified by your spirit, through your word, in the midst of your people. Amen. Santa Claus. Go ahead and picture him in your mind. Go ahead, please. All right. Got it? Well, that should actually be impossible. I will not elaborate as to why picturing Santa Claus should be impossible. Um, as it seems to me that uh, how Santa Claus is handled is one of those uh, places where faithful Christian parents might disagree about how to handle it. So I'm not going to deal with that. I actually don't have strong opinions on that at all. Instead, I just want to make the point that we likely form, when I said Santa Claus, we likely form 
similar pictures in our mind. Likely, the picture you form is that he is likely old, sporting a large belly, wearing red and white, with a long beard and bespeckled. Now, now what you believe about St. Nick, honestly, it really doesn't matter much to me. Well, so long as you hold to the story about him punching the heretic in the nose, that part you better agree on, um, because that's the coolest part of his legacy. But of interest to me is, is how it is that the Santa Claus doctrine seems to have formed within our culture. Every year or so, a new Santa Claus movie comes out. And I've noticed some common themes. Here's what I've noticed. For example, while Santa is supposed to be so powerful and so knowledgeable, he is always running behind for the one deadline that he has every year. He always has a list of naughty and nice, and the naughty are always old, and the nice are always young. The, the naughty always have someone who did them wrong that caused them to become naughty. It's typically a father. Thank you, Hollywood. The good news is that usually within a few hours, you can undergo a, a life transformation and be moved off the naughty list onto the nice list. Furthermore, while Santa Claus has some extraordinary abilities, he is fully dependent upon what people believe upon him. When people stop believing, oh boy, things start to unravel. And while Santa Claus doesn't seem to be getting older, he's certainly not young and spry. Now see, if I had some advice for Santa, it would be that he should have turned on the anti-aging option in his maybe young 30s. Seems somewhere around that time your body begins to fall apart. I mean, you begin to find muscles that you didn't know existed, pains that you... I don't know why Santa waited so long to stop aging. It's always bothered me. I mean, if you're going to spend eternity at that age, that's a lot of Tylenol to be taking at the age that he is. He should have started earlier, but the, anyway, that's, that's for something else. All right, I'm kidding. I'm jesting. But there's actually... Something I want us to think about with this, I actually believe is important. See, I think it is that many in our culture, especially here in the South, they think of God in the same manner that they think of Santa Claus. While it's unlikely that many folks would ever admit that, I think it's actually really true. I don't, I don't, not only do they deem that God and Santa Claus share similar attributes, but the way their doctrine of Santa Claus is formed is similar to the same way they form their doctrine of God. It is by popular perception. The way that many people in our culture form their doctrine of God seems to consist of little more than what they would like to believe he is like. So friends, let me ask you, what do you think about God? Where do you get your information for what he is like? If you think he's powerful, why do you think he's powerful? If you think he is kind, what grounds your belief that God is kind? If you deem him to be able to hear you, why do you think he can hear you? 
If you deem that he cares or doesn't care about you or your actions, what makes you think that? So we began our service this morning by reading responsibly from our church's statement of faith, Article 2, on what we believe about God. These ideas are grounded in what the Bible tells us about God. My prayer is this morning that we will plainly see that the God of the Bible is very different from the common Santa Claus doctrine. But furthermore, I pray we'll see the Bible serves as the only true source for what we should believe about God. And it's the only place where God has fully revealed himself. So we're going to be in the Psalms, the Psalter. That's a big word for the book of the Psalms. It serves many functions for Christians. But one of the most important functions, one that is often overlooked about the Psalter, is that it offers for us very descriptive accounts about the attributes of God. And I want you to appreciate the wisdom of God and how he's done that. So most of the Psalms are written 1,000 years after Abraham, which is 500 years after Moses. Now, this was the perfect time for God to reveal to his children much of his attributes. So coming 1,000 years after the promise to Abraham, it offered God's people plenty of time to soak in the ways of God, and to appreciate the extreme faithfulness of God. And by coming 500 years after Moses, the time at which God gave the law, he installed the necessary patterns of regular worship, such as the tabernacle, the temple, the sacrifices, the offerings, it gave the people of God a time for understanding both God's mercy, but also his holiness. Now add to that in the perfect timing of God that he would ordain that not only would the Psalter come a thousand years before Jesus, but he would make it the the catalog of songs and recitations that would be enjoyed by the people of God. So the Psalter is full of all of these pictures of Jesus. So for a whole millennium before Jesus arrives on the planet, God's people were doing what on a regular basis? Thinking about him, preparing the people of God. God prepared the people of God to see him when he shows up. So here in Psalm 93, there are three points I want us to see this morning. In verses 1 and 2, I want us to see our God in charge. And then we'll look in verses 3 and 4 and see our God unmoved. And then finally, in verse 5, our God is holy. The first, our God in charge. Verse 1, the Lord reigns. He's robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. So in the first sentence of the first verse, the psalmist tells us that God reigns. He describes God as wearing majesty as his clothes. 
So David is the one who wrote this psalm. And notice that David doesn't say that God's clothes are majestic. Majestic is an adjective. It would be used to describe clothes. David was a king. David wore royal clothes. David's clothes that he put on might be described as majestic. But David says God is clothed in majesty, the noun. God is covered in majesty. He is covered in greatness. David isn't describing God's clothes. He is describing God's person. God is fully majesty. Not only is God covered in majesty, but he wears strength. The word for strength, while translated in the English as a noun, is actually a reflexive verb, meaning something like, and he makes himself strong. Now, for any creature to become strong, we've got to do some things. We've got to lift some weight. or We've got to do some work to increase our muscle size muscle size. God makes himself strong by being, period. He's put forth, he hasn't put forth one ounce of effort to become strong. He just puts it on, as he describes here, just like putting on a belt. God reigns and he reigns with maximum majesty an unending power, an undiminished strength. Now notice, this is, I think, very helpful for how we think about God as a corrective. Notice it doesn't simply say that God will reign. It says he reigns. And it's actually even more impressive than that. It's going to get a bit grammatical, but I promise you the payoff is worth it. The most wooden translation would actually be something like God reigned. But because the verse is speaking in present tense action, we translate it in English as God reigns. The point is that his reign is so complete that even though we continue to experience the outworkings of his reign, we can actually speak of it as already finished. He reigned is, might be the way to think about it. It's fully established. It can't be changed. It's unalterable. He reigns. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. And if you continue to verse 2, your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. It's the same point continued. It doesn't say your throne is being established. It says your throne is established. It is complete. It's done. God isn't trying to become king. He isn't waiting to rule. His rule is such a foregone conclusion that we can speak of it as established and complete. Furthermore, God isn't like us driven by time. He, he doesn't set an alarm clock because he doesn't sleep. He doesn't have a calendar because he doesn't do days and hours and minutes. He exists wholly outside of time, unaffected 
by time. He is eternal. He isn't an old man who stopped aging. He is fully unaged, maximally mature king of the universe. As Christians, let us drop this anchor for our soul. Our God reigns. His reign is fully complete and he is fully in charge. His ways are established. His deeds are defined. His desires are fulfilled. His dreams are realized. His control is unending. His reach is unaltered. And His plans are uncompromisable. Let me state it again. As Christians, we believe that God reigns right now. And He reigns forevermore. In Psalm 15 verse 3 we are told that our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. Let me just say that again. I remember the first time reading Pat. So you read scripture a lot and you just get in this religious mode and you say, oh yeah, of course. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. I remember at some point just landing there and going, huh? Listen, our God is in the, in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. By saying that he's in the heavens, it doesn't give us his address. It's telling us that he exists in such a way that there is no address. By saying that he does all that he pleases, it's saying that God always gets his way. He never negotiates. Wouldn't even know how to negotiate. He never compromises. God never bends on any one of his agenda items in order to get another one accomplished. He always gets all of his agenda items accomplished every time. Not one thing has ever happened. Not one thing will ever happen that God hasn't signed off on. Brothers and sisters, do we give our God this type of credit? Do we see God as this powerful and this supreme? Not in the future, but right this second. Or do we believe his control is reserved for later? Do we believe and act like he's merely a spectator? When God's people see him in this sort of fashion, one of the things it does is it drives us to pray. One of the most important postures in prayer is the posture of submission. Our time in prayer as a congregation should be asking as we submit to the will and reign of God. Asking as we submit. When we ask God to heal, we are asking that in earnest that God would heal. Definitely. But we are also submitting to the perfect eternal plan of God to do whatever he pleases. This drives us actually to pray more often, more fervent. This is why we can take the same item of, to God in prayer over and over. We don't think that God's forgotten. Oh, yeah, let me remind him about that. No. As we bring our prayer before him, we are we are not altering his plan. 
but we are conforming our submission. God's plan has ordained our prayers as much as it has ordained what he will do. One moment, I'm finding my place. I am not omniscient. So corporate prayer is important because it allows us to grow together in corporate submission to the reign and the rule of God. And personal prayer has the exact same effect on an individual. As God's children, we learn to submit to Him in prayer. Christians believe that God fully reigns now and that He fully reigns always. But notice the second sentence of verse 1 sandwiched between the two declarative statements of God's reign we just considered. So you basically get, He reigns. Oh yeah, He reigns. And then right in the middle is this statement. It's the second sentence of verse 1. Here the psalmist offers us reason to believe the stable and complete reign of God. Let me tell you what he's trying to do here. He said he reigns. He's going to repeat again he reigns. And he's going to throw in here in the middle one of the reasons you can believe that he reigns. The Lord reigns. He's robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He's put on strength as a belt. Now listen to this. Yes. That's, the, that's his way of cueing us. You can believe this. Yes. The world is established. It shall never be moved. Why should we believe in the perfect reign of God? Because we can look at the world, we can look at creation and know that God established it and preserves it. God created the world and holds the world in being. So as Christians, we believe in the creation of the world by God. And as we believe in the constant preservation of the world by God, both as creation and the fact that he's preserving it from one millisecond to the next, it should entice us to believe in the constant, persistent reign of God. So our belief in God's creation and in God's preservation of his creation, it establishes our belief in the full and complete reign of God. I think this should warn us about the great danger of the uh, uh, theory of Darwinistic evolution. At the center of the project of Darwinistic evolution is the notion that the world around us can be explained without having to posit a strong, perfect creator. But let us see here that Darwinism isn't mere scientific exploration. It's far more sinister. Sinister than that and far more dangerous. Darwinism is an attempted coup, an attempted dethroning of God. Now, I don't say that to be hyperbolic. I have friends who are thoroughly bought into Darwinism. I don't think they're explicitly trying to dethrone God. But I believe we are naive if we don't understand that the effect that Darwinism has had on our secular culture is that it's that it is fully content to see God dethroned. Giving up the notion of a creator gives up one of the clearest pictures 
of evidence of God's present reign. All right, so we're going to move on. Not only is our God in charge, that's verses 1 and 2, but verse 3 and 4 says our God is unmoved. Now consider with me verse 3 and 4. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. And then there's a retort. Mightier than the thunders of many waters. Mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. This is such an interesting transition. The same psalmist who declares the strength of the Lord, who declares that the stability of creation bears testimony to God's reign, is now pointing to what? The volatile nature of this world. I find this really helpful. It's as if the psalmist is raising an objection for us. Perhaps someone would say. Perhaps an objector would say, let's say I grant that God created the universe. Are you really asking me to consider the stability of this created order as evidence of God's rule? I mean, look around. Consider just the number of earthquakes and tsunamis and hurricanes. How can we say that this universe is really held stable by God? Never be moved, Satan? Pretty much what we get here by the psalmist. But look at his reply. Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Here's the response. We're going to dive into this, but here's the response in essence. The response is that we are so accustomed to the stability of God, the stability that God affords us, that we are no longer amazed at His mighty work of holding this world constant. It's like the landscaper who keeps such a well-manicured lawn that the smallest weed is easily noticed. Friends, do we realize how amazingly delicate our situation is? That if God isn't maintaining the status quo, we would be ruined? If God wasn't a thousand times stronger than the strongest storm, Let me tell you, we would be finished. How often do we stop and realize as we are right now sitting still? Right now, we're sitting still. Right now, we are rotating at a thousand miles per hour on our axis. A thousand miles per hour. All right, hold on. This gets crazier. All the while, we're sitting still. Rotating a thousand miles per hour, we are, (laughs) the earth is traversing through space at the mere speed of 67,000 miles per hour. Dad's never been that fast before. And, and so, all right, so, so we're going, sitting still, we are. 
No, we're going 1,000 miles an hour, rounded around. Then we're going at 67,000 miles per hour. All the while, we're in a solar system that is also whizzing around the galaxy. And it happens to just be whizzing around our galaxy at 490,000 miles per hour. All the while, we are what? Sitting still. Bear in mind that our planet is not a solid object traversing the journey. Instead, we carry with us 332 million cubic miles of water. And it gets crazier. We actually don't have room for that much water. But it just so happens that the continents are formed in such a way that they hold the water back. And then any second those boundaries went away, then the, the entire Earth would be covered in 8,000 feet of water. All while going through the galaxy, it's like riding the scrambler while walking a tightrope and holding a cup of coffee. And then all the while we are held at the perfect angle, 23.5 degrees, at the perfect distance from the sun with the perfect magnetic field surrounding us, any of which changed at all, we would either be frozen or fried. So yes, we have some hot days. Yes, we have some storms, but I think we can all agree that only a perfect, omnipotent God could be holding this whole thing together. Furthermore, I think it's enough for us to be ready to fully say he who holds this thing together must be he who reigns supreme. There's a little bit more in those two verses. The psalmist here is speaking of real fear in the midst of a storm. He's speaking of the power of God in the midst of a storm. Let me remind you of an account in Matthew, Mark, that Matthew, Mark, and Luke record. I've got us in Luke 8, but we could have picked any of these. So remember, these guys have been, these are Jewish boys. They didn't have a hip-hop chart, right? I mean, what you're going to sing if you're going to sing? You're going to sing what? The Psalter. That's it, man. Strike up 93. Here we go. The Lord reigns. I mean, that's just how it worked, right? They've been singing the Psalter their entire lives. That's it, right? So they've been singing it. Just keep that in mind. These are fishermen. They've been singing it. Worst storm of their entire life blows up, right? Verse 22 of Luke 8. One day he got into the boat with his disciples. And he said to them, let's go across the sea to the other side of the lake. So they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake. And they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and raging waves. And they ceased. He awoke. <laughs> Just read that statement. Come on. And he awoke, and he rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was calm. He said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid. They marveled, saying to one another, one another, who is this then that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him? So for a thousand years, they, the people of God have been singing Psalm 93. They heard verse 3 declare the fear of the psalmist. The waters have risen up. 
The waters have risen up and they're lifted up. They're, roar, they're roaring. Surely we can see the disciples in their fear and desperation lived out in Psalm 93, verse 3. And then verse 4, mightier than the thunders of many, many waters, mightier than the waves on the sea, Yahweh on high is mighty. And surely when Jesus stands and proves far mightier than the rising seas, the disciples realize who it is who just calmed the storm. It's Yahweh himself. And their question proves this. Who must this be who commands the winds and the water? Brothers and sisters, how often do we live this story out in our lives? The storms around us start blowing. The winds start picking up and we quickly assume that God is sleeping. The psalmist already tells us the answer to every storm, to every catastrophe. Yes, the storms will come. Yes, the storms can kill you. But our God is stronger than any storm. Unlike us who are easily moved, our God is constant. He's unmovable. He can't be shaken. He cannot be surprised. He can't even be slightly stirred. Now, there's more work to do here, but we're going to go to verse five and then circle back. Our God is in charge. Our God is unmoved. And finally, our God is holy. Verse five. Your decrees are trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. So the psalmist finishes by saying that God's decrees, his words are very trustworthy and that holiness adorns his house. There are two claims being made here. One, that holiness adorns God, God's house. That's a way of declaring the separateness of God. God's not like us. He's wholly separate from us. So where God resides, his house is completely separate from fallen men. To say that God's decrees are trustworthy is to say that all that God says, all that he's revealed to us, it's true. I don't believe these are just two random attributes that the psalmist threw in at the end. No, these two claims just happen to be the same two claims denied by Satan in the garden in the fall of mankind. And his discussions with Eve. First, Satan denied that God's claims are trustworthy. Genesis 3, 4. No, you will certainly not die. What is that? That's a denial that God's words are, his decrees are trustworthy. And then the second. God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be what? Like God. Instead of declaring the separateness of God, it declares that by sinning, the gap between God and man can finally be closed. Which is a very scary, scary thing uh, to behold. And, and, we, and we see it. So here, the psalmist declares for us the exact opposite. He declares that God can be trusted and that God is indeed separate. God's ways, his, his decrees are correct. And also the psalmist declares that God is completely different. 
Now just pause and think about those two things. We're in church, it just feels like the type of thing that would be said, but let's just let it hit us. God's ways are right. God's ways are right. And the second one, God is fully, uncompromisably holy. If God's ways are right, then what if we don't always keep God's ways? If God is fully holy, then there's no place for Him to bend the rules. No place to let a few things slide. For all of us who have and do transgress the decrees of God, let me state this is not good news. So what do we do? We'll go back to verse 3 and 4. You can pick something up. In verse 3, the psalmist says, not just the waters. He actually doesn't call it the storms. He calls it the what? The floods. The floods have lifted up. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Now, when you think of floodwaters in the Bible, is that typically a good thing or a bad thing? It's a very bad thing. It's a horrific thing. Genesis 6 records for us the event of Noah and the flood, and it was horrible, catastrophic. It was the judgment of God unleashed. And then you fast forward to the very next time after Genesis 6. When do we see floods happen again? Oh, we know exactly when that is. That's when the waters of judgment rain down on the Egyptians as God judged them in the Red Sea. I believe verse 3 and 5 can either be encouraging or devastating. Friends, let me ask, have you honestly considered the terrible reality of God's judgment. God declares that His decrees are true and they better be followed. He declares that His houses are ordained with holiness and no one will be with them who's not holy. Where do you stand? Where do we stand in, re in relation to that reality? Do we recognize the danger involved? Say we do see it then what do we do? Maybe we just make an oath that for now on, I'm going to get my ducks in order. Or maybe, you know what, I'll just pull out my checkbook and write a check. Some of you have never had a checkbook in your life. Um, your Apple Pay and send something, I don't know. Let me state that we stand no better chance in our efforts than those who perished in the flood or the Egyptians in the Red Sea. So what do we do? i tell you what we do. There's only one thing. You praise God for Psalm 93, verse 4. Mightier than the thunders of many waters. Mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. What do we do? We turn to the one who is mightier than our sin. Those on the ark were saved because God's mercy outlasted his judgment. The Israelites walked across on dry land because God's mercy overcame his judgment. 
And on the cross of Jesus, we see verse 4 perfectly embodied. Mightier than the thunders of many waters. Mightier than the waves of the sea. On the cross of Christ, the Lord on high is mighty. We turn in faith and surrender our course to Jesus. Recall the words of Jesus to his disciples on the boat when he got finished. What was it? That wasn't that big of a storm. Come on. I thought you guys were fishing, right? Uh Uh-uh. He had one question. It wasn't that they had misunderstood the storm. It was what? Where's your faith? Faith is the work of the Spirit in our lives that allows us to see the reality of the storm even the storms of judgment. So one of the things faith does is it opens your eyes to see the reality of the storm. But then it also, kindly, by the grace of God, allows us to say, mightier than the ways of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. When faith is present, we return to verse 5 and we find it not to be discouraging, but it's encouraging. Now read verse 5 one more time. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. As believers living by faith, we will work to order our lives by the decrees of God. And as such, we find great comfort knowing that His decrees are trustworthy. They're good. As we hear that holiness befits His house, we find encouragement to pursue holiness before Him recognizing that we are close to him in holy living. But as we do this, we do it recognizing that our hope is firmly in the mighty work of God. Psalm 93 tells us that God reigns. God holds the world in place. God is from everlasting to everlasting. Our world feels chaotic. The storms rage. There are tough days and there are tough days ahead, but there is no storm that will come to us that God is not already ordained. There's no storm that is greater than God himself. If God has secured us through the greatest storm of our sin and our rebellion, then he will secure us through every other storm. Our God is in charge. Our God, He is unmoved. Our God is holy. The Lord reigns. He's robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as His belt. Yes, the the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods lift up their voice. The floods lift up the roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters. Mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great kindness in giving us your word. I can imagine how many saints 
have been helped by this song throughout history. Thank you for the gift of it, Father. And we pray that you would help us to find faith in it. Father, if there's anyone here this morning that hasn't taken serious the storm of judgment about their sin, would you allow them to turn to Jesus Christ the mighty in repentance and hope. Father, for us who have turned to Christ, instill in us a love for your decrees, a desire for holiness, and a trust at all times that you are in charge, unmoved and holy. Amen.